Okay. Once again, we're on the Epistle of James. And today we're going to start chapter 2. And this is written to the 12 tribes of who? Israel. That's right, of Israel. Who are what? They're scattered, scattered abroad, that's right. Or dispersed, that's another word for it. So that means it's the Jewish Christians, because 12 tribes of Israel can mean, of course, just anyone who's a Jew, by lineage. Okay? If I can give you an example, like I gave you last time, we have the seven tribes of John here. Okay? Now later on, once you have grandchildren and grandchildren and you keep on having children, uh, there may come a point in time where you know, John's of the faith of Christ. Where there's some people along the line who aren't of the faith of Christ. Uh, so when I talk about the twelve tribes of Israel here, I'm talking about those who are of the faith of Christ. So there's, there's a twelve tribes of Israel in two different senses. One is the natural sense. Every person that comes from your lineage as part of John's clan, his, his tribe, is going to be part of his lineage, period. But when it comes to being a part of a spiritual lineage or heritage, they must be of the faith of Christ. And that's what we're talking about. The twelve tribes of Israel who are scattered abroad, who are actually Christians. Okay? Not non-Christians, to Christians here. Alright, let's, let's do a little review of last week, real quick. Can anyone remember anything we talked about last week? Anyone? Daniel? Bridal or tongue. What does bridal mean? Um, guide or tongue, that's right, to control it. And what, what, is a, what is a bridal? What is that in real life? Okay. And how small is it? Small. Pretty small, probably about that small. And how big an animal is it controlling? Big. Really a big animal. Just like your tongue is really small. We talked about the tongue having the power of life and death. Depends on how you use it. You can use your tongue to gossip about somebody, talk badly about them behind their back. You can use your tongue to make fun of somebody or put them down. Uh, you can use your tongue to preach the gospel or to build someone up and encourage them. Uh, that, you can use your tongue in different ways, but the tongue is a very powerful muscle. Not because it can lift weights like your bicep or your tricep, or because you can run miles on your tongue like you can with your legs, but because your tongue can actually do pretty powerful things. So we need to keep self-control over our tongue. And we also talk about being uh, slow to anger. Quick to listen, slow to speak. How many ears do we have? How many mouths do we have? What does that mean? Okay, think twice and speak once. It also means we should listen twice as much as we speak. A wise man is a man who knows when to hold his tongue. I'm always uh, reminded of in my parts in church meetings with leadership in churches I've been a part of where I'll just sit around, I've learned to do this where I'll sit around and just listen for a while I'm, I'm urgent to say what I want to say and to speak up when I want to speak but the smart thing to do is sit around and I keep my mouth quiet and eventually the pastor gets to me and says, well what do you think? After hearing everything I've heard I can make a better assessment now of what we should do going forward because I've heard everyone's input. Whereas I would have spoke up from the beginning, I probably put my foot in my mouth. I probably would have said something I shouldn't have said. 
It's always good to keep a tight rein in your tongue, not just in the sense of not being sinful, but not speaking too quickly. To be slow to anger. That's what I said, to be slow to anger. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Talk about two different kinds of anger. There's an anger where you, you react, and it's a reaction anger. That's a sinful kind of anger. There's an, there's an anger that's a godly kind of anger. May even, uh, talk, may, may even involve yelling. Malachi! See that? I got his attention. I spoke up real loud, but I thought about that. I didn't just react to something he did. Okay, so that's not a sinful anger when I do that. Okay, so talking about anger, about controlling the tongue, listening, uh, be careful how you speak, and, uh, and thinking twice so later on you don't have to apologize and be sorry for what you said. We also talk about being doers of the word, not just hearers only. We all look in the mirror. I mean, every one of us probably looked in the mirror this morning. And if someone didn't look in the mirror this morning, you could probably tell they didn't look in the mirror this morning. Oftentimes I'll be on college campuses preaching, you'll see a guy come up and he'll have his hair just going all over the place and he might even smell a little bit, might have bad breath, and you can tell that guy didn't look in the mirror, or he did, he looked in the mirror and walked away. And if he looked in the mirror and walked away, and he still looks the way he does, what does that mean about, what, is, what do you think about his own appearance? Doesn't care. It's like someone who hears the word of God and doesn't do it. They don't care. They don't care one bit about the Word of God. If they did, they would do it. Either they don't believe it's really the Word of God, or they're just fools and they're building their house upon sinking sand, which is a fool. That's why it always, always amazes me. Why would people build a house near a beach that, that hurricanes hit it all the time? Pam, pam, pam. What's going to happen to their house eventually? Unless it's built of cement. It's going to go down. And uh, when I hear of the hurricanes in like Florida and stuff like that, it makes you want to be as far away from the ocean as possible. Now, of course, there are ways to protect yourself when you're living closer to the ocean, but it's just a, you know, just, it just correlates with what Jesus said in Matthew 7. We talked about looking, looking into the law of liberty. The law of liberty, does, does the law of God bring, bring you into bondage or bring you into liberty? Liberty. But sinners look at the law of liberty... And they think it's bondage to them. Because they want to live according to their sinful desires. But later on, their sinful desires will bang that, and that will bang the law of liberty, will result in them being cast into bondage forever and ever, an eternal jail cell called hell. That's the worst bondage you can be in. Okay, now let's, let's look at uh, James chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 13 today. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man with filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom, which he, has, he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really follow the ro fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, 
you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For, for whoever shall keep the whole law and you stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so once again, he's writing to the brethren who are holding to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So the distinguishing here, not just those natural twelve tribe of Israel, but the spiritual twelve tribe of Israel. Those who are of the faith of Abraham. I am not a Jew by lineage, but I am a spiritual Jew. But he's writing to the natural Jews who are of the spiritual heritage of Abraham. Okay? He says, uh, for if there should come into your... Right, don't hold the, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Uh, is partiality sin? Yes, it is. Oftentimes, I'll go to a, a church and, and speak maybe at the youth group. Like I did recently at the church that's nearby. And you can see cliques within a, within a group. And what's a clique? Anyone know what that is? Okay, we don't know what that is. A clique is simply the division between people where all the people who are uh, the smarter people go over here. All the more sports-like people go over here. All the people who are you know, dressed in goth go over here. You know, these little cliques is what it's called. These little groups of people. They separate themselves and they have partiality. Well, you can't come with this group unless you're like us. That's what it's like. And it's not a godly separation. It's an ungodly separation. And we'll get into the ungodly separation he's talking about here in a minute. For there should come into your assembly. Now, the Greek word for assembly here is synagogue. Synagogue. In fact, it's translated as synagogue, and I think in almost every other instance. Let me, in fact, let me give you a little Greek lesson here. This will be your first uh, little lesson in Greek. I'm going to write the Greek word here on the board so you can see how this, uh, how this works here. The first letter is a sigma. And then there's an upsilon. And then there's a nu. And then a alpha. I know what alpha is, so I'm going alpha and omega. And then a gamma. And then omega. And then another gamma. And then what's called an eta. Okay? That's the word synagogue in Greek. Okay? So you got sigma, which is like our S. Okay? You got upsilon, which is like our U or like our Y, because the Greek language doesn't have a Y in it. So you got U or Y. Then you got the nu. Looks like a V, doesn't it? But it's called a nu, and it's, it's like our N. And you got the alpha, which is like our A. It just looks just like our A. And you got the gamma, which looks like, kind of like a Y. But if I were to close it in, it would look like a G. Kind of. Okay, but that's, that's, a, that's a gamma right there. It's our, like our G. Then you got an o, omega, which is like our O. Now, there's two O's in the Greek alphabet. You got the omega, and you got the omnicron. The omnicron, just like our O, is like a short O. Uh, uh. But the omega is like a long O. O. So you got omega. And then you got the gamma, another G. And this is called an eta, which is like a, uh, a long E, I guess you could say. And it looks like an N, but it has a long stem on the end there. Okay? So this is the words that is translated as assembly here. This is the word in Greek. 
That's what it looks like, okay, in Greek. And it basically just says synagogue. And uh, if we were to transliterate it, which means you take this word and just say it in English, of course it would be this. Synagogue. That's the way to be transliterated. Transliterate simply means you take a Greek word and you say it in English and spell it out as if you spelled out in English. That's what it means to transliterate something. But if I were to translate it, which means you take the meaning of this word and translate it in English, it means assembly. It means congregation of people. In fact, in the Jewish uh, religion, if you had ten people together, that was considered a, an assembly. Where, you know, we, we say where two or three gather in his name, you know, there he is. They say it's ten to be an assembly. And uh, in a Jewish meeting place, the synagogue or assembly, uh, it's very similar set up to the way we have our churches, church buildings set up. Uh, they'll have one big sanctuary, and that sanctuary won't be meant for preaching. It's meant for praying. They do all their praying there. And then they have small rooms off to the side that are meant for teaching, kind of like Sunday school rooms you see at a normal local church. And then they have, usually have offices or administrational uh, rooms as well. Um, but a lot of times we'll hear in these day and age, you'll hear people say, well, I'm going to church. Which is really not the way you're supposed to say it. Because according to the Bible, the church is not a place you go to. The church is something you're a part of or you're not a part of. The people who have believed in Christ and trusted Him, they are the church. So you're not going to the church, you're going to be with the church. So really, if we're going to be correct in our language, we should probably say we're going to synagogue. We're going to the assembly. That's really what we're doing. Here today we have an assembly of believers. We're meeting together, discussing scriptures, praying together, singing to the Lord together. That's what a synagogue is, an assembly of people. Okay, so that's the Greek word, it's the English transliteration. And um, that's what we have here. We have a synagogue here. An assembly of people who are meeting together to serve the Lord and to follow Him. Okay, so if, if there should come into your assembly, or your synagogue, I'm not talking about the, Greek, the Jew, Jewish meeting place here, but an assembly of people. Should come into your assembly of people and a man with gold rings. Now these days, you know, most men who have, or married, have a gold ring on. But back in those days, it was very rare to have a gold ring on. It meant you had a lot of money. Okay? Uh, come into your assembly, a man with a gold ring, and find apparel, and there should also come in a man, a poor man, in filthy clothes. Now the word fine apparel here can also mean shiny, or glamorous. It has this, this thing of clean, cleanliness, which back then was at a, a premium to be clean. And to be clean, I mean, today we have running water, we have running toilets, we have all these... These amenities, but back in those days, they didn't always have those things. So they were clean people. They had f fancy clothes, shiny clothes, glamorous clothes. It must be like uh, you know, the, the red carpet in Hollywood. They come on a red carpet, they pose, and then you see all these people saying, well, look at their dress, look at their dress, look at their clothes. And I'll tell you who made the clothes, how much it's really worth. And I, I bet you anything, the people who, who made those clothes are paying them to wear those things on the red carpet so they can get those clothes sold. So you have these people who are coming in shiny clothes, and nice clothes, and then in the, the filthy clothes. And the word filthy clothes means shabby there. Shabby clothes. So dirty clothes, clothes not very nice. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, the nice shiny and glamorous clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. Say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my footstool. And says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, when you say, well, 
you have nice clothes and a gold ring and your clothes are clean and you over here, your shabby clothes, they're not very nice clothes. You, you sit here, you sit in, but the rich person, you sit in a place of importance. Who thinks like that? The world thinks like that. The world thinks, well, he's rich, he must be important. He, he should have more authority. Let's give him more decision making. But this person over here, he don't, he don't know anything. He's poor. He doesn't belong here. Let him go sit over there in the dust. That's the way the world thinks. Should a church be thinking like that? No. The, how much does someone makes doesn't mean anything. Some of the most ungodly people in the world are, have lots of money. And they got that money by doing ungodly things. So having money doesn't that... And it, it goes along with this, this thing today where people think, well, if you have money, you have the blessing of God upon you. This whole gospel of this prosperity gospel, well, if you have money, God must be blessing you. No, money can be a curse if it's used wrongly. And God may give you over to your greediness and you become more and more money and more and more greedy and, and then you just go down to hell in the end. It's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle because their greediness takes them over. So you've shown partiality and not become judges with evil thoughts. Now judging itself is not wrong. But judging with evil thoughts is wrong. Let's turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 16. And in 1 Samuel 16, just to kind of set up the situation here, I'm only going to read a couple verses. What we have here is Saul was anointed the king of Israel. But now he disobeyed God and he's been rejected by God. Been rejected by God. And now God has told Samuel, the prophet and judge of Israel, the leader of Israel, he's told him, now you're going to anoint someone else as king over Israel. He said to him, go to Jesse, because I will anoint one of his sons over the king as king of Israel. So let's, let's pick it up from there, and let's start reading in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, this is one of Jesse's sons, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's saying, well, surely this Eliab must be the one God's chosen. Look at what, verse, what God said to Samuel in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the Lord looks at the heart. Now go down to verse 12, and this is describing David. So he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Ruddy, rugged, probably a little dirty from dealing with the sheep all day. Uh, but he, was, he wasn't the best looking of them. He wasn't the most physically uh, uh, intimidating one. He wasn't real tall. Uh, we have him as being short, as we see later on in the scriptures. But uh, he's not the best looking. He's not the one. If, if you were to look by, just by external appearance, you wouldn't pick, you'd probably pick him last. And that's probably why, one of the reasons why Jesse, his father, didn't bring him up the first time. He brought all the rest of his sons except for him. He thought, well... There's no way he's going to pick David. No way. That's what people do when they see a rich person and a poor person. They say, well, he's got the blessing of God. He doesn't. He must be important. He's not important. That's, be judging with, that's judging partially with evil thoughts. In John 7, 24, the Bible says, Jesus says, judge righteously, not according to appearance. 
judge righteously. And how does God judge according to 1 Samuel 16, 7? According to the heart. So God looks at the heart, not the appearance. Okay? So we should judge impartially. So when it comes to these things like external appearances, we shouldn't judge partially. Uh, so does someone with nice clothes and who has more money, do they deserve more attention, more authority than someone who has shabby clothes or dirty clothes or has less money? Now, oftentimes, I've been in so many positions of church leadership, I see the church playing these political games where they'll pick leaders based on how much money they have or how much money they give to the church or if they own their own business or not. Well, they're, they're business-minded. They'll help this church be a business. But is the church a business? No, it's a ministry of God. It's not a business. It's a ministry of God. This is one other thing I want to touch on here, and this is a little bit of a side note here, is newly saved people and things they may need to still get out of their life, they're not there yet, um, they may not have the same standards as just yet. They're newly saved. They are Christians. And me and John talked about it not too long ago. Uh, for example, let's say, and I was talking to another brother about this recently on the line. Uh, this newly saved convert, him and his wife were discipling her, and she was dressed kind of immodestly, according to our standards. But she had no idea, she's a new convert, she had no idea how to be dressed. She wasn't raised as a Christian, wasn't raised in a Christian household, wasn't taught the way to dress, like you children are taught the way you should dress by your parents. So she wasn't taught those things. So because she's dressing immodestly, she has no knowledge that it's immodest, doesn't, make, doesn't mean she's in sin. doesn't mean she's, uh, she's unsaved. It simply means she doesn't know better yet. But as soon as she knows better, if then she rejects that authority, rejects that standard, then she's in sin. But she didn't. She received it, and she changed. And that's what happens a lot of times. Like, for example, when I, was an, when I was a, first became a believer, I had a lot of music and a lot of movies that I wouldn't dare even watch today. Because I didn't know yet. But as I watched them, I was like, man, this is bad. I threw it away. I listed, man, that's not good, and threw it away. But while I still hadn't, doesn't mean that I was in sin while I still had those. But as I became aware of the situation, that it was sinful to listen to this or to watch this, I got rid of it over time. Okay, but if I were to reject that position, reject what God has shown me, then I'd be in sin then. All right? So we've got to keep that in mind, because as, as as maybe God begins to grow us numerically, if new believers come in here, they're not dressed very modestly at first, we shouldn't look at them like, hmm, they're not dressed very modestly. But as we, as we educate them and they understand and God convicts them, then if they reject it, then it's time to maybe say something to them. But we need to be real careful about that, that we don't drive someone away who's new in the faith and who wants to grow, but isn't ready to hear those things yet, or, isn't, or maybe they don't know about those things yet. So we need to be real careful about that. Okay, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Okay, so we have rich, we have the poor in, poor, uh, in the world, poor of this world, to be rich in faith. So I think in this verse, what we have is God revealing to us why he's allowed certain people to be poor in this world world. Is it to punish them? Sometimes it might be. But I believe the reason why God has allowed certain people to be 
poor in this world is so they can be rich in faith. Because we talked about this last week. What happens when someone has very limited possessions, maybe even have to count on God every single day for food, for clothing, for shelter, for water? They have to trust God more. So God allows certain people who are born in situations they're born into to trust God more, to, have, to be rich in faith, to go deeper in their faith. That doesn't mean that someone who's not poor in this world can't be rich in faith. So it means that God is allowing someone who's poor in this world so that they will trust in Him more, depend upon Him more, look to Him more for their daily needs. So there's poorness where He's chosen for them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised. So does this, this mean that, that every person who's poor is going to be an heir of the kingdom? Does it mean that every person who's poor is going to be rich in faith? No. So it means that's what God's trying to do in their life. And they'll be heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. And if you love God, you will obey Him. Not obeying Him, you don't love Him. Those who love Him, those will be the ones who are heirs to His kingdom. But you have dishonored the poor man. So they've dishonored Him by showing partiality just because He's poor, not based on the condition of His heart, but just because He's poor. Judging externally, unrighteously, partially, become judge of the evil thoughts. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name of which you were called? Now this is obviously talking about here the unsaved rich. Not talking about the saved rich here. Talking about the unsaved rich. And in that period of time, one of the greatest persecutors of the church of Jesus Christ was the Jewish people. They saw the church of Jesus as a threat to their religion. And it was. Because Many, many Jews were turning from the Jewish faith to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and trusting in Him as the Messiah. So they were persecuted, they were lied about. You see this what happened with Stephen. You see when they try to, try to take out Peter, and they try to take out Paul, and then they try to take out, uh, take out James, the half-brother who's writing this, take out him. So it happens, happening over and over. They, they want to take these leaders out because it's a threat to that. And the rich and the worldly system, who has the most authority? The most power. Those who have the most money. In the worldly system, money equals power. That's what it equals. In the worldly system, money equals power. But in the church system, we'll go back to James 1, what does money equal? It equals possible future humility. When you get your riches taken away from you. Because your riches aren't meant to be stored up. Because moth and rust will destroy riches of this world. Riches are given to you, if you're a Christian, by God for the furthering of His kingdom. To use them for His glory and His glory alone. Not to let them sit in some account somewhere and build up and collect interest. Unless, of course, God's put it on your heart to save for something that's going to glorify Him. Okay? So these rich drag you into courts. They blaspheme the name you're called by. If you really fulfill the royal law, man, the royal law, the king of kings, what does royal mean? Kind of gave you a hint there. Royalty means kingly. comes from the king. The king is the greatest authority in the land which he rules. Who is the king of kings and lord of lords? Jesus Christ. 
He is the greatest authority. He is the greatest rulership in this land. And he's given the royal law. What's the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's also called the greatest commandment. You find it in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. And someone asks him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And by doing this, you fulfill the law and prophets. The law and prophets hang on these two commands. As you're walking in your Christian life, you're following the royal law. If you follow one, these two laws, the royal law, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, all the rest of the commandments will be obeyed automatically. All the rest of the commandments flow from these two commandments. The two greatest commandments, to love God, to love people. That's what they flow from. So if you fulfill the royal law, uh, you, obey, you obey the scriptures. You will do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, are, con are convicted by the law as transgressors. So you have comparison here. Sin, obeying the royal law. Perfection, sinlessness, and sinfulness. Sinning. That's the comparisons here. You fulfill the royal law, you're loving your neighbor, you're loving God, guess what? You're not going to sin. You're going to live, you're going to obey God perfectly. But if you show partiality, if you sin in one thing, then you become transgressors. And verse 10 is probably the most misquoted verse, I think, uh, among Christian evangelists that I know. It says, Forever shall keep the whole law. They stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. Now, does this mean, let me just give you an example here, and you tell me if this is what it's saying here. This is what people are saying it's saying. Does it mean that if I lie, I lie, that I therefore become a murderer too? Does it mean that? Well, it says, it mean, doesn't it say that forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point is guilty of all? Is that what it's saying? So doesn't it, does it, doesn't it mean that if you lie, you become a murderer too? Okay, well, let's, I'm glad you guys are holding fast to it. Let's look at the verse before it and the verse after it. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressor. You become a transgressor. And then in verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. That's what it means. And what it basically means is, whether you're a liar, or whether you're a murderer, or whether you're a thief, okay, you're a transgressor of the law. Period. You've broken the law. And because you've broken the law, what happens to lawbreakers? They're punished. They're guilty for God. And what it's saying is here is a liar is just as guilty as a murderer of transgressing the law. A thief is just as guilty as a liar. A murderer is just as guilty as someone who's covetous. As far as it is, it's breaking the law. It doesn't mean that if someone dies as a liar without trusting Christ, someone dies as a murderer without trusting Christ, that the liar will have the same punishment in hell that the murderer will. It doesn't mean that. There's different... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Different ranges of punishment. And what the Bible teaches is that you're judged according to your knowledge. So, let's just say there's this circle here called the 100% of knowledge. Okay? No one has 100% of knowledge. Let's just say you have 5% of knowledge. Okay? And then we have someone 
who has 25% of knowledge. And then we have someone who has 1% of knowledge. Okay? 1%, 5%, 25% of knowledge. None of them trust Christ. Who's going to have the worst time in hell out of those three? The 25%. That's right. Okay? Now this 1% here could have been a murderer. This 25% could have been a liar. This 5% could have been a thief. Now, murder. Is murder a more heinous crime? Yeah. It takes human life. Okay? It's a more heinous crime here on earth. It's a more heinous crime. And to God, it's a more heinous crime. But because that person had less knowledge, they'll have an easier day on Judgment Day. But let's flip it around. Let's say that the 25% guy was a murderer. The 1% guy was a liar. The 5% guy was a thief. Man, that 25% guy, he's going to have a... The, the guy who does 25% who is a murderer and the guy who has 25% who is a liar, who's going to have the worst time now? They both have 25%. One's a murderer, one's a liar. Who's going to have the worst judgment day? The murderer. That's right. See, that's the way it works. God judges on a scale here. Okay? doesn't judge partially. He judges impartially based on knowledge and understanding and based on what you've done. That's the way God judges. So this, James 2.10 isn't saying here that if you lie, you become a murderer. That's judging wrongly. God doesn't judge that way. I mean, what do you think of someone who's standing before a judge in a courtroom and he's uh, stolen? But God's, the judge sends him to jail and gets him, gets him the electric chair. It's the kind of punishment you give someone who murders somebody. You think that judge was unjust. And God's not an unjust judge. Let me go back to verse 9 for a second. It says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. So humans, if they show partiality, they commit sin. Now, according to Calvinism, remember the tulip here? Does anyone remember what the U stands for in tulip? Yeah, unconditional election. Okay. Now, unconditional election basically says that God picks and chooses who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. That seems kind of partial to me. Doesn't it sound partial to you? Okay. So, the question then becomes, if you is true, and God is be if God is being partial, if, if you is true, and I believe he is, does God, the Calvinist God, commit sin if he does pick and choose who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? Does he commit sin? The Calvinist God? What do you say, honey? According to the Bible. Let's, let's see what the Bible says. Let's look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. <clears throat> the situation here is Peter and Cornelius. Up to this point, the Gentiles had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Jews, despite Jesus saying, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, go preach the gospel to all creation, it's like they weren't hearing it for some reason. So God has to send a dream to Peter. And send a dream to Cornelius. Cornelius sends for Peter. Peter comes. And what does Peter say when he gets there? He says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. This verse alone refutes you, in my opinion, because Peter used to think, Well, Jews. The Jews are going to be saved. Now he's seeing it for, just for, for once. He's seeing that the Jews aren't just the only chosen people. In fact, as Paul wrote later on in Romans, many Jews were broken off because of unbelief. 
So he sees that God wants to save the Gentile, which encompasses everyone who's not a Jew. Everyone who's not a Jew. Not just Gentiles living in that region, but every person who's not a Jew. So God does not show partiality. First uh, Peter chapter 1. One book over. And we'll start in verse 15. One book over from James there. But as he who called you, talking about God, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So, the standard of holiness is who? God. If God's partial, if you is correct of Tulip, and God is partial, and we're to be like Him, holy as He is, well, can we be partial? We sure can. But doesn't the Bible say don't be partial? And if you are partial, you're committing sin? Doesn't it say that God's not partial? So if God is partial, is He committing sin? Does God commit sin? Is God partial? Yeah, that's the point. That's the problem we have here with, part of the problem we have here with Calvinism. God is not partial. He tells us not to be partial. When he tells us not to be partial. He's telling us to be holy as he is holy. So therefore, he's telling us one of his attributes. He said, don't be like me. Be like me. Don't be partial. In fact, I, I'm willing to say that when it comes to moral character, God wants you to be just like him. Just like him. And if he is partial, if you is correct and he is partial, then he wants you to be partial. But the Bible explicitly says, don't be partial. And that God is impartial. Guess what? You can't be correct. Once again. All right, let's move on to verse 12. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, speaking to Jewish believers here, who will be judged by what? The law of liberty. Wait a minute now. I thought they were automatically saved. I thought they were automatically going to heaven. No. They'll be judged. They need to live according to the law of liberty. Let's just turn to Matthew 5 real quick and we'll basically be done. This is Jesus talking about the Beatitudes or the blessings. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' greatest sermon in my opinion. Probably the greatest sermon ever spoken. Matthew 5 and verse 7 says this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If someone sees how wicked a sinner they've been, they've committed all these crimes against God, all these crimes against God, and then God says, okay, you come to me in repentance and faith, I'm going to wipe them out. And they see that God's wiped out their debt, and then someone comes along and commits couple of sins against them. Should they say, well, listen, you know, I can't believe you did that. You know, what's your problem? I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Is that the right way to act? Yeah, if, if you, someone has truly seen the mercy that's been shown them, how can they not be merciful in return? How can they not? Let me just read one more story to you. Matthew 18. 
And we'll see a parable here that discusses this, and then we'll be done. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Could a kingdom of heaven? The king settled accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, that all he had and a payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will repay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. He wiped the debt out. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that he had been, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until all, he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart who does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Two things here. Jesus talking to his disciples who are saved. You don't forgive your brethren? I will relinquish my forgiving of you, and I will put back all your sins that you committed against me, and now you have to pay all. Hell forever. See, if God's going to give you mercy, it's your place to be merciful in return. To forgive somebody. And forgive doesn't mean you forget about it. It means you no longer hold it against them. Doesn't mean you trust them the same way you did before. It means you no longer hold it against them. If someone molests one of my children, I'll forgive them of it. I won't hold it against them. But I'm not going to trust them with my child again. But you forgive somebody, and if you have this is one of the this is one of the most important things in the gospel is mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Judgment, hell, sin. Important parts of the message. But mercy. That's the great love of our Savior. Mercy. And he's willing to forgive me. I should be willing to forgive everybody and anybody, whatever they do against me. Whatever they do against me. We were in the Tona Beach preaching the gospel, and this guy I was witnessing to said, if I, if I kicked you right now, would you forgive me? I said, yeah, I'd forgive you. He said, I, I wouldn't burn down your house with your family inside. Would you forgive me? I said, yeah, I'd forgive you. No, you wouldn't. He just couldn't believe it. Because he's looking to see if I'm going to be merciful. Because I'm talking to him about mercy. And if I'm a child of God, I should be just like God, who himself is merciful. All right. Anyone have any questions or comments? Yeah?
is mercy granted without repentance? No, it's not. Yeah, God doesn't grant mercy without repentance. God always stands willing to forgive. God always stands willing to forgive, but He does not grant mercy or pardon without repentance and faith. There's conditions to it. And what about the servant? Well, the, the, the servant, dealing with the other servant, he was repentant. He was willing to pay all he had. And, uh, of course, the unmerciful servant wasn't merciful towards him. So... Yeah, I mean, if someone comes to you, they commit, do a sin against you, and they come to you, um, let me just kind of give it like this. I say there's two different kinds of mercy, okay? There's a mercy that stands ready to forgive, okay? And then there's the mercy, mercy that actually disperses forgiveness, okay? Now, God is always standing ready to forgive the sinner or to have mercy on him. So that's, that's the first kind of mercy here. And we should always be offering mercy, offering forgiveness to someone. Now forgiveness involves two things. The, the person who commits the crime, the person the crime is committed against, and then being reconciled. Okay? So if, if someone commits a crime against me, a human being, I stand ready to offer a mercy. And at that point in time, I'm not holding it against them because I need to be merciful towards them. But our relationship will not be reconciled until they come to me in repentance and faith, and that's when mercy actually happens. But it doesn't mean that if someone commits a crime against you as a human being, that you're to stand aside in bitterness and in anger and an unforgiveness toward them just because they're not repentant. If someone comes to my house and kills all my family, I'm not going to go into court with this vengeance in my heart and say, I want him to get a death penalty. I'm not going to do that. That's unmerciful. Even if he's unrepentant. I, if he's unrepentant, then he should be taken care of because of society's sake. Society needs to be protected from such a man who's not repentant of such a thing. But I'm not going to hold my forgiveness or my holding against him from him because he's not being repentant towards me. Does that make sense? I guess I think of about Stephen being stoned and saying, Lord, don't count this against him. Right, they weren't repentant. They weren't repentant. And Paul repented, or Saul repented later. Well, that could have had an impact on him. We don't really have any scripture that says that, but I'm sure it probably did have some kind of impact on him. But then again, what Stephen said and what Jesus said were the same thing. Forgive them for they know not what they do. So the ignorance was the reason he was asking for forgiveness. That they were ignorant, not ignorant of that murdering is a crime, but ignorant that what he was saying was the truth. They weren't seeing it. It's like the people who killed Jesus were ignorant of the fact that he's the Messiah. They weren't seeing it. They were blinded by, by their own sin, probably. So they weren't seeing it, so that's why I, I believe they're saying, forgive them for they know what to do. But like I said, it doesn't mean that we, like if, just to give you an example, let's say someone, um, well, maybe someone shoots me. They do it on purpose. They know what they're doing. They don't like my preaching. They come and they shoot me. And maybe they just shoot me right here. So I don't die from it, but I lose my arm because of it. I'm not going to live the rest of my life thinking about that guy and thinking about vengeance and about not being forgiven towards him. I'm going to be forgiving towards him. 
But we can't be reconciled until he actually comes to repentance and says sorry. And his heart felt about it. Okay, so, but I, I, think, I think we can't go so far as to compare God and man and man and man. There's a difference there. So, but God, God always stands ready and willing to forgive. And he, he still wants this person's best who's sinning against him. But that forgiveness is not dispersed until he's repented and trusted in Christ. Whereas when you're sinning against man, it's a little bit different. So, but the reason we should, one of the reasons we should forgive if we are Christians is because we've been forgiven so much ourselves. That's the point I think James is making here is that mercy, mercy is the whole point of the gospel. Not judgment. Uh, he doesn't desire them. He desires mercy for sinners. But they must come in repentance and faith.